Well, I invite you to uh, turn with me this morning to uh, Matthew chapter 21. So the next section that we're looking at uh, this morning in Matthew's Gospel. And here uh, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. Uh, So let's read. Normally we do this on Palm Sunday or something, the, the weekend before Easter, but we're ignoring all that and we're just going to press on. So... Because there's a lot between Palm Sunday and and Easter Day itself. Let's uh, hear God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the roads. And the crowds that went before him uh, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And again, we thank you how much it teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'd help us to see him um, and uh, respond to him appropriately. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are, we're working our way through the, the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, Matthew, rather. And. Uh, I was looking back at the records, and actually we started this just after Easter 2020, so nearly three years ago. And uh, so our, we've been covering, this tickles me, the length of time that we've been covering this is about the length of the ministry of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and uh, the earthly ministry of Jesus. But we are, uh, so we started in Easter 2020, it's, uh, it's kind of good to be nostalgic. Do you remember what we are doing in Easter 2020? Uh, we actually had to go online. Uh, we, were, uh, we couldn't meet in public. Uh, I started this series uh, by video uh, on YouTube. And, um, and then we moved to the open air. And uh, we did some of it in the open air. But, uh, uh, so it's good to look back, isn't it? But anyway, let's press on. Uh, chapter 21, we come to a new phase of the story uh, of, the, of Jesus. Because here's Jesus now. Entering into Jerusalem. And he's doing so for the last time. Um, Soon it will be Passover. And at the Passover, he will die. And that's what he promised. In fact, he promised three times. But the last time he promised was in chapter 20, uh, verse 18. And he says to his disciples... 
uh, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So there's a sense of foreboding about coming into Jerusalem in a sense. Now, like all the Gospels, Matthew's What's Matthew doing here? Matthew is presenting to us Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel is, the gospel, the Christian gospel is not about how to get religion. It is not a philosophy of life. It is, it may include those things, but it's not about those things. It's not about how to live. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, about the person of Jesus Christ. It's about him, it's about his identity. Where did he come from? Who is he? And what has he come to do? And what does that matter to us? And one of the pivotal points in this uh, gospel was back in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is, referring to himself? And various answers are given for that, about what other people say about who Jesus is. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And it's at this point, uh, Peter says, says, Matthew 16, you are the Christ. Which seems to be a, a moment of revelation, if you like. Peter, who's been following Jesus, but not really sure who he was, perhaps, or where he was going, or what he was up to, but he enjoyed being with him. And then, but now he suddenly seems to get something about the identity of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one. And it's not that he gets all of it. He doesn't understand all of it, as you see by subsequent questions and comments that are made by the disciples. But it is about the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in presenting to us the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is also good news. Therefore, it's a gospel. That's what gospel means. Good news. It's, about this, it's a story of a great victory that Jesus Christ has won. Victory over death, evidenced at the end of the gospel, in all the gospels, by the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead in victory, and he lives. So here we are, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, with Jesus, one week before his death. Jesus enters to something of a commotion. Here's people gathered all around him, in front of him and behind him, spreading out their leafy branches on the road for Jesus to travel on. And it's a beautiful story, a story of preparations that have been made, of enthusiastic crowds, of the remarkable acclamation of the crowds, uh, praising God for the, the coming of this Jesus of Nazareth, who, as they say at the end, is this prophet who has come. Yet it's evident that over this event there is a shadow cast because of what awaits him there. And so this is a significant moment that 
Because by the end of the week, he'll be dead. The Pharisees and scribes will have got what they wanted. They've put an end to this uh, commotion that Jesus is causing, or so it seemed. But Matthew draws our attention to the deeper significance of Jesus' arrival. One of the things that's really important for us to grasp about the life of Jesus is that he is not at the mercy of events. Jesus is never at the mercy of events. There's a famous uh, saying by one of our politicians in the United Kingdom, uh, Harold Macmillan, who is Prime Minister from uh, 1957 to 1963, uh, he was asked, once asked what represented the greatest challenge for a statesman And Macmillan famously replied, events, my boy, dear uh, events. (laughs) Events, my dear boy, events. And in a sense, politicians are always at the mercy of events. Look at our current current government. Aren't they at the mercy of events? (laughs) There are so many things that are out of control that they can't control. Events just seem to derail everything. Not so Jesus. This is a passage that shows us Jesus' entry into Jerusalem because, and it's significant because it is the culmination of Old Testament expectation. And then it is significant because of what the arrival says about Jesus himself. He is a king. But what kind of king is he? And then thirdly, it's significant because of the effect that his arrival has on the city, which we'll examine all of these things in a moment. But in all of this, our eyes must be fixed on Jesus Christ. And as we view him, just like the other people in this passage, we too will be drawn out in praise and worship to God for his salvation. So first of all, let's note the fulfillment of an ancient expectation. The fulfillment of an ancient expectation. This is found in the manner in which Jesus arrives uh, in this account of a donkey and a colt and how the disciples got hold of them. And Jesus and his disciples are on the Jericho Road. They're passing through Bethphage Uh, to the east of Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the city. And Jesus sends two of his disciples into the village to get these animals. Uh, Clearly, Jesus knows about them. He knows that they're going to be tied up. Um, uh, And these disciples are just to take those animals and bring them to Jesus. And it's a strange story. How did Jesus know about this, about these animals? Did the indwelling Holy Spirit reveal that to him? Did did the Holy Spirit communicate that truth to him so that he would know that there were animals there? Or was it simply that he made plans in advance of arriving in Jerusalem? Ones that we're not told about. Who knows? You can speculate. But it's interesting that these people who see the disciples taking the colt are to be told 
The Lord needs them. And to me that suggests that, that, that Jesus was well known as the Lord. And that Jesus had friends in that area. You may, you may remember that Mary, Martha and Lazarus uh, lived in Bethany, which is not far from Bethphage. Uh, news about Jesus had passed around. And so they seemed to know him as the Lord. And almost certainly this title, Lord, would carry divine connotations. Uh, he is, so Jesus is well known. He is recognized as significant even though they may not get all the significance of it. And Matthew is showing us a recognition, firstly, of Jesus' own understanding of himself, because Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. So Jesus knows who he is. And secondly, the acceptance of other people, that he is the Lord coming into their presence. But the most important thing about this arrival was what Jesus was going to do with these animals. What does he want to do with them? Well, he wants to ride on them. And so you see this happening in verse 7. They they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. He was going to, to ride on a donkey and come into Uh, to Jerusalem. And it was a a self-conscious act by Jesus. He knew exactly what he was doing. And it's actually a declaration of, to the crowds, of his identity. Now, how is it so? How is it a declaration of his identity? Well, it's a fulfillment of a prophecy that's found in Zechariah. Zechariah writing several hundred years, four or five hundred years before Christ. He writes. And I've lost it. Where is it? Yes. Verse 5. He writes in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now what are you supposed to do with a quote like that? That's from 400 years before. Well, you're supposed to go back to Zechariah and read it. And maybe the people in Jerusalem and gathered around Jesus were familiar with the quotation from Zechariah chapter 9. That was verse 9 that's quoted. But I won't read it to you this morning. But Zechariah, what's Zechariah doing? He is bringing a prophecy about the judgment that's to come on Israel's enemies. And in speaking about the judgment that's going to come, he speaks about the grace that is going to come in their midst. 400 years, 500 years before Christ. And then in Zechariah 9.9, he says this amazing prophecy. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And then he goes on, Zechariah, to speak about the reign of the king over the nations and the peace that will come as a result of this king that's going to come on a donkey. And so here's Jesus riding into Jerusalem, deliberately saying, making a statement to the crowds that he is that king 
who has come in peace to bring the peace of the gospel, the peace of the kingdom of God, to a people who will have it. And that this Jesus will reign as king over a new kingdom. So this is a a messianic moment being played out in front of the people. And we are able to look back and look with awe and wonder as the crowds cry out in praise and worship and shout, Hosanna! And uh, where do they get that from? Well, they get it from Psalm 118 and Psalm 148. Uh, They begin to use the Psalms to praise, you know, attributable to God and yet now attributed before, to God before Jesus. And friends, as we read this story, you know, it's easy to get distracted by the incidental details. Some of us may be thinking about you know, the kind of children's activities you do on Palm Sunday. You know, we make these little crosses out of palm branches. and It's all great fun, I suppose. Um, but we need to see it this way. That this is God working out his purposes fulfilling his prophecies and in his providence making things happen as they were intended to happen. Exactly as he intended it to happen. So this is a fulfillment of ancient expectation. Secondly, notice the the humble arrival of the king. It's not exactly how you would expect somebody to come uh, when he is someone great. And if you're a ruler, how do you show power and greatness? Uh, That's the thing the British are very good at. They've always have been very good at. And in the middle of the 19th century, at the peak of empire, not that I'm advocating for empire or anything, I'm just observing, um, At the peak of empire, Britain was able to keep much of the empire under control through displays of greatness in grand events. Uh, So giving the impression of power uh, and might to the subjects of that empire. Uh, Although the reality was very different. Actually in India, uh, India was ruled only by a few thousand and yet, it was, Britain was very good at pomp and ceremony. I could project the image of power to the world and keep the empire under control. And we still kind of do that. We're still very good at the pomp and ceremony in this country. Think of the, the, Queen's, the late Queen's Platinum Jubilee uh, or her funeral uh, last year. All the processions, the carriages, the the horsemen, the military bands, the soldiers. All that pomp and ceremony. It's what you do when you're trying to project greatness. What about King Jesus? King of an extraordinary kingdom that is not of this world. Maybe you would expect him to come in pomp and ceremony, might and majesty. And certainly there was an expectation that the Messiah would come in power and glory and come amongst the people of Israel and he would take his throne.
stone, throw the, the, the Romans out, and everybody would gather around Jesus and rule with him. The, you know, Israel would, the, the Jews would rule with him, and everybody else would come and bring their tributes to the Messiah. And the disciples sometimes disputed amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And in fact, we noted earlier that one of the mothers of two of the disciples, the mother of two of the disciples rather, came with a request that his, her two sons would sit either side of Jesus in his kingdom because they're expecting him to be at the pinnacle and the disciples to be right next to him. Can my sons just be next to you? So they're waiting for that glorious moment where all the power and might of the kingdom would be made manifest and they could be part of it. And even after Jesus' death and his resurrection, uh, in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, they say to Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? As though, well, maybe now it's going to come. Maybe the power is going to come now. And still didn't quite get this kingdom. You know, I just wonder if that's what the expectation of the crowds was. When Jesus enters on a donkey, they're saying, the Messiah has come, the king has come. He's going to take his throne. And they were in a mood to worship. And they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to the king of kings. Now this is worship, of course, that would be sung to the Lord, to Yahweh. There was an expectation that someone would come and inaugurate uh, David's kingdom. And what's, what you need to remember is that for 450 years before Jesus, uh, there was complete silence. But now he arrives. And they start to sing this. And they're beginning to say... Well, we've sung it so many times before, but now we're singing it because we think it's really here. And there's a renewed energy in the crowd. Hosanna. Lord, save us. That's what Hosanna means. And they start laying out cloaks in the ground and palm branches, all as a sign of honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as though as as Jesus enters Jerusalem... People felt they were about to enter into a new age, perhaps. A new age where God is bringing the salvation that was long promised in ages past. Well, Matthew tells us that the Messiah has arrived. That he is indeed fulfilling the expectation of the Old Testament. But there's no pomp and ceremony. There's no might and glory as they might have hoped for. It's not a mighty war horse that he's arriving on, but a humble donkey. Now why does he do that? Well, I think it wasn't until after Pentecost that the the disciples truly grasped what was going on. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, Paul says that Jesus Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It was essential that at all points this king would come 
in a state of humility. Which, of course, as we have seen already, is the path to true greatness in the kingdom of God. The path of humiliation, the path of self-giving love. Not grasping after power and authority, equality with his father, but being ready to pour himself out for the sake of his people. What love. What love he shows. But I think it's true to say that little did this crowd know what Jesus knew, that he was going not to be enthroned on a great golden crown or anything like that and and crowned in the midst of the apparatus of imperial power. Rather, the crown he would receive would be a crown of thorns rammed upon his head so that blood flows down his face and that his throne would be the cross upon which he would be nailed and suffer and die. So he comes humbly. But finally, notice this. Notice how the city is stirred up. In verse 10, Matthew says, When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Who is this? Who's this man? What's his identity? Where has he come from? That's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question even for today. As I said, Christianity is not simply moral teaching about how to live a better life. And we don't just get at that by, can't just glean the moral teaching by looking at the stories of Jesus. The real question is, who is this? Who is this man? If you're somebody who's interested in Christianity today, and I presume you are because you're here in this service this morning, but you're not interested in that question, who is this? And you're not interested in that question above all other things in the Bible that you might be interested in, then you're really missing the point of what Christianity is altogether. If you don't ask the right kinds of questions, you can never get the right kinds of answers. And the first question is, who is this? Are you interested in that question this morning? Who is this? Who is this man? And actually, even if you do ask that question first and you get the answer that leads you to become a Christian, you will never stop asking that question. Who is this man? Who is he really? How is he more than I I perceive him to be? Because the more you grow to know about him, the more you want to know him. You want to say, who is this? Grow in your appreciation of who he is. Are you asking that question? You may be a Christian this morning. Are you asking that question? Who is this man? How can I know him better? And friends, I think there's a warning here in the answers that are going around. Because in verse 11, the answer is given. The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. On the face of it, it looks like a great answer. He is a prophet. He is a prophet. He is the prophet. The one prophet that is promised long, which all other prophets foreshadow. Christ is the anointed prophet who brings the word of God to people. He is the revelation of the word of God. 
And it's through Jesus, as we're looking at on Thursday, and we're thinking about how Jesus Christ makes him known, how Jesus Christ exegetes the Father. He makes the Father known to men and women, boys and girls. He is the prophet. And they were right as far as it went, but it actually didn't go far enough. You see, what's striking is that the, the crowds at this point are yelling and, and shouting Hosanna to the son of David and praising God together. But a week later, they're going to be shouting crucify him. Now, was it the same people that are shouting crucify or shouting Hosanna? We can't tell. Maybe some of them were. And even if there's one, isn't that instructive? It's a reminder that a little knowledge of Jesus may not be saving knowledge of Jesus. That your little knowledge of Jesus could be quite fickle and it could end up coming to nothing and you join the crowds and say, crucify him, if you were there. What you need, in addition to knowledge, is to be converted to Jesus Christ. Which leads to following Jesus Christ through thick and thin. And having that earnest desire actually to be close to Jesus. To to get up like the blind men we were looking at last week. To get up and follow Jesus. Not just see him passing. Well let me finish with a final exhortation from Isaiah chapter 55. Again. Uh, anticipating the coming of uh, the Messiah. And Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon That's the promise that's given to anyone who will seek the Lord and seek to follow him and move from just having a little knowledge about Jesus Christ to full-blown trust and faith in Jesus Christ, willing to die for Jesus Christ. That's to die with Jesus Christ. So come to Jesus, follow him with all your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this uh, Wonderful little story. It reminds us of the kingly entry of Jesus, the kind of king that he is. Meek and gentle. Ready to serve. But in serving, wins a victory only he could win. A victory over death and sin and the power of sin. That we might be saved as we trust in him. We pray you'd help all of us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.